Hello, and thank you for joining us for this week's episode, in which we are going to take a look at the original graphic novel and screenplay to the 2009 film Watchmen. We selected this film to tie in a little bit with Comic-Con, which was taking place right next to us in San Diego. As usual, we'll be focused in figuring out what makes this story tick, and as we often do with long screenplays and books, we decided to focus in quite closely on the characters, rather than breaking down the plot scene by scene. I also want to say a few thank yous to a member of the Reddit screenwriting group, uh, a chap who goes by DarthPaul1978, who managed to get us a copy of the screenplay at short notice, and my writer friend Adam Azoulay, who was able to do the research to confirm which version of the script it was and its authenticity. And to anyone else who reached out with other copies and versions of the screenplay. After the 400-page graphic novel, we just decided to focus on the one draft screenplay from 2003. This is a podcast that we really hope you like, whether you're a writer or someone who just loves the art of storytelling. If you enjoyed the episode, please do subscribe and recommend it to any friends you think might find it interesting. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. We are both here based in San Diego, and this week happens to be Comic-Con. So in honor of that, we are going to be going over Watchmen, which is a graphic novel, and it was adapted by David Hayter and Alex Say. And as everybody knows, it was directed by Zack Snyder, and the graphic novel was David Gibbons and Alan Moore. Yeah, Alan Moore is very well known amongst film fans as well for being the writer of uh, V for Vendetta, amongst other things. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, I was really excited to tackle this one because, you know, in the spirit of Comic-Con and I do like comic book movies. Um, I'm not a big comic book reader myself. I've read maybe like some X-Men comics and Spider-Man when I was younger, but it wasn't like a, a thing for me. It was mostly watching the films and like the TV series and all of that. But Watchmen is a different kind of superhero film. It's a much more grounded story in terms of the themes of it. You know, there's still superheroes and there's still this supernatural stuff going on, but the the thematic element of it is much more mature. And I think that's what makes this story very unique. I feel that the characters presented in this, they'll have a very unique perspective and the way they kind of play off each other is just really engaging and it's it's all there in the graphic novel i think that's why this the film was really good is because it's it's a very faithful adaptation i think there's some stuff that changed a little bit towards the end of the film but uh we'll talk about that later but i feel like overall i think they were very 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 faithful to the to the comic book yeah so from my side as well i'm particularly partial to the the type of stories that explore the concept of superheroes but i'm not interested in the franchises most of Mm. the time i'm I'm not the biggest fan of the big franchise movies Mm -hmm. but i do enjoy the stories that try and cut underneath it a little bit and Mm. and either satirize it or consider the wider implications of what having the existence of superpowers in the ordinary world would lead to which Mm. i think watchman falls into that second category there, yeah. there is a, a subtle element of satire in Watchmen. Mm-hmm. It's quite clear that a lot of the superheroes are 
kind of closely based uh, Night Owl and Batman, for example. Mm-hmm. They, they're reflections of familiar tropes. But then you also have characters like Rorschach who are complete inventions. Yeah. And Rorschach is definitely the epitome of an anti-hero. It's, it's taking the anti-hero and turning him into his, his final form almost with Rorschach, mm-hmm. which is to be completely loyal to a code, to, to have a code of honor that he right. sticks to yeah. uh, above all else, but also what that would entail, what the personal cost would be to, to be someone like that. So I, I really think The Watchmen in particular is a great one for us to be addressing for, for this week of Comic-Con 2019 as kind of a bridging over between some of the more serious, mature kind of screenplays we've been looking at recently. Mm-hmm. The artistic element, I, I think, as a work of art in itself, the original graphic novel stands above many other graphic novels that were around yeah and still to this day holds up as a completely gripping story it's definitely a favorite and i hadn't read the comic book until i had to do this and i was very excited to read it yeah i think this is like one of the very few graphic novels i've finished and started completely and yeah no it's a very gripping tale and it's it has very different narratives too it doesn't follow a particularly it flowed, but it had its own unique style of unfolding the story, which I really enjoyed. And actually, talking about, you know, you were you were mentioning the satirical part. Actually, Alan Moore, he wanted to reflect contemporary anxieties and also deconstruct and satirize the superhero concept. So at this point, uh, this, is, this was the 80s, so there's been years and years of comic book heroes, and I think he was ready to put under the microscope a little bit and sort of explore a more grounded approach to what these superheroes would do and not making them black and white, good and evil. You know, like you said, Rorschach is the epitome of an anti-hero and you're with him, but yet you're flinching at the stuff that he's doing. Yeah. You know, one thing I'd love to also add just for anyone who's interested, basically there is a book called understanding comics by Scott McLeod, that a good friend of mine who is a, a visual artist recommended to me a couple of years ago. And it's an absolutely fantastic book. It's written entirely in comic format. Mm. And the character of Scott McLeod, who is the artist, appears as a teacher within his own comic. And he he visually illustrates all of the, the different elements that can be used in mm. telling tales through through comics, so how we feel motion, how we hear sound, how we get transported back in time by a flashback, how we how we relate to characters, even though the images are static and on mm. on the page in front of us. So, for other screenwriters as well, it's a brilliant guide to learning about how visual mediums work. Yeah, especially anyone who's interested in animation, things like that. One of the things that I found so fascinating about something Scott McCloud wrote about is how it's actually something that is the way Dr. Manhattan sees the world, mm. is that he sees the beginning and the end and everything in between all the, all the time. And uh, Scott McCloud points out that that is true of comic books, that you can constantly see the panel that comes before the panel that, that comes afterwards, the one that's above and the one that's below, mm. and you're constantly viewing 
a moment in time, but your peripheral vision is aware of where things might be leading and what had come before. So it's that's fascinating. That's an interesting perspective. It's very never thought of that before. It's very different to the type of writing that we're used to. Right. As as screenwriters, what we what we need to look at is this: you're breaking down something that is operating in a medium that is unique. And the same is true when we get a great novel and we're trying to adapt that for the screen. Mm. We need to extract out of that novel everything that's powerful about it, but we're never going to be able to use the exact same techniques that the novelist used. Right. It's a completely different format. And you're essentially telling that the same story, but using different tools to, to get that story across. And there's a lot of scenes in the in the film that are directly like almost like image by image from the comic book. For example, the there's a scene where I think it's Lori, she's talking to Night Owl as Dr. Manhattan's getting ready for, for his interview. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much, because I was watching the film and I was also reading the book at the same time. So I would pause and then read, I would pause and read, because I was like really trying to compare and it was almost like shot by shot. It was like the comic book. And there was a lot of sequences like that because it does have a very, it jumps out of the page the way they kind of like tell the story. So in a way that must've been great for the filmmakers. You know, they pretty much someone already storyboarded it for them in terms of like visuals, but. I, I see it more in terms of taking inspiration. Right. Because what they're doing, well, it's, it's two things. They're trying to take inspiration and they're trying to honor the source material because they mm-hmm. know that the primary fans and the people who are most likely to go out and recommend this film to other people are going to be the ones who enjoyed the comic yeah. originally. So they they sensed that they had to honor mm-hmm. where it came from. But we're we're looking at this very interesting process because you could say, Well, okay, we've already got the graphic novel. What do we need a screenplay for? Mm. What I found by reading the screenplay, and we've primarily focused on the um, the version of the screenplay that's available publicly in the in the WGA library in in Los Angeles, which is the uh, the 2003 version written by David Hayter mm-hmm. uh, before Alex Say was involved in the project. What I've noticed in this version, above all else, above the graphic novel and above the final film version it is much easier to follow what is happening with certain props and certain characters in the Mm. screenplay version in particular that's just one thing that you can do in a screenplay is that subtle postcard picture of someone or that Mm. that, uh, i think rorschach has information about this company called pyramid and he's he's carrying that around Mm -hmm. it just stands out in the screenplay of hey this prop is important you should you should mm. focus on this and it draws your attention to it in a way that in a graphic novel it can be very subtle. It can just be this visual hint in the corner of, right. a, of an image. Because there's so much visual stuff going on and so many colors and so many different things that it can get lost in mm-hmm. while you're reading it. Um, so I can totally sc- see that, yeah. So the screenwriter is responsible for allowing the filmmakers primarily to know what is important. Right. And it's not as easy as just writing, hey, see page 55 of the graphic novel for how this should look. You need to paint your own picture mm-hmm. so that the reader 
without any of those visual distractions, can focus on what is this story made of? What are the components that make up the story? Mm-hmm. And when we consider the amount of rewrites that Watchmen, the screenplay, went through, we start to understand, oh, there's there's a lot more to this than just adapting the graphic novel. Mm. In particular, the ending, as we'll see throughout this conversation, yeah. that seems to be the most contentious point in terms of each rewrite from the graphic novel all the way up to the version that's finally mm. included in this latest ultimate version release on mm-hmm. film that ending is constantly changing and defining the theme of that ending and what it's going to mean to the person who's watching only the film version without mm. having read the graphic novel it it really changes the entire story yeah there, there's a it definitely ends on a different note and i think it comes full circle to what you were saying because I, I saw this interview with Zack Snyder where someone asked him point blank why did you change the ending and it was essentially that it was because in in the film it felt like it was like it came out of nowhere that whole thing at the end and that it was there in the it was there in the comic book you can look back and you could see it but he says you don't have that luxury in film and it wouldn't have the same effect so you have to work within the parameters of screenwriting like you what are your tools and i think one of the tools that he really used wisely in 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 the film is just like the way where he put the camera i mean he puts the camera in such interesting and very striking and very seductive places and motions and i mean it's a very visceral experience watching the film like Mm -hmm. it's a I mean, every shot is just beautifully composed and, and just like the cinematography of it all is just beautiful. It's a very beautiful film. Absolute joy to watch. Mm-hmm. It's a way that it invites us into this world of fantasy as well. The, that New York, that, that alternative history New York, going to Mars and seeing the construction out of glass that Dr. Manhattan builds, those are the things that really strike us and yeah. ultimately even though this story is built up of very strong components, the visual side to it in itself is just worth studying just by itself. It's beautiful. For any cinematographers out there, I mean, this is just like a a work of art, I feel. And the other thing is just really bringing these characters to life and, and getting the right actors to portray these characters because I believe Alan Moore, um, I think he was writing... I think it's like it was like a twelve issue series. That's correct. I, and I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And then when he when he wrote it, when he started writing the script, it was only a six, like a six issues. So he was faced with that. I don't have enough story. So what he did was he just gave all these characters like these flashbacks, and that's where all these flashbacks come, and they start becoming a huge part of the the main storyline and how the relationship between the characters takes the focus as well it's like center stage you know with laurie and the comedian and her her mom and all these different dynamics and relationships come into play that don't necessarily tie in with the plot 100 percent, but nonetheless we're we're really getting to know these characters and that's part of what makes the film work is that you really get invested with these characters by the end of the film and you really care about what happens to them absolutely and this is a luxury is having space having time Mm-hmm. The the one luxury film doesn't have is ideally you're trying to tell this story in around two hours for a feature film. 
Which this film did it. <laughs> it's certainly not the the ultimate edition either, yeah. which runs at about three hours and fifteen before the credits start rolling. Yeah, the ultimate the director I think director's cut was three hours and the 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 ultimate's three and a half hours and the original original is two hours and forty minutes I think which mm-hmm. was really trimmed down. I think that's the one I originally watched, but I don't remember. I saw the theatrical release when it was released in Me the too. cinema, and yeah. I haven't seen the film since then. So certainly I feel that the ultimate edition, whatever I had been concerned about with the theatrical version, it has put those concerns to rest. I thought that the version I just saw, that three and a half hour long version, mm-hmm. was exactly what it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. And... I have absolutely no complaints about it. essentially as an adaptation of the original graphic novel, which I had enjoyed so much, which I had read before the film had come out. I know I went out of that original cinema experience thinking, ah, they they missed an opportunity there. It was so good, but that something was missing. Mm-hmm. And now I think, no, they've nailed it. They, Whatever they added back in got it to feel more like the graphic novel. I definitely feel it felt appropriate. It didn't feel too long. Honestly, I'm I'm uh, shocked that it was three and a half hours long and it didn't feel like it. And it's not a very plot heavy film in the terms of like they're not constantly dealing with plot. They're dealing with how these characters are reacting to the plot and then going and exploring their background. Mm-hmm. Having a mystery that's unraveling, I think, helps grip the audience yes. as well. Yeah, it was like the sort of background. So it didn't feel random. It was like... If that wasn't there, you would you would be thinking like, okay, like what's the point of this? We're just okay. We're getting to know these superheroes, but where is it going? Obviously, it is going somewhere. It it was a very nice balance of going to the plot and then going to these flashbacks and and then the next time there's like a a leap in the plot, you're a little bit more heavily invested in the characters, so it feels like the stakes are getting higher. I thought it was a very intriguing premise. You know, a superhero is dead. And his friend finds out and like what I mean, that in itself is engaging. Yeah. That it allowed a, the freedom for them to then explore the characters. Yeah. Having a murder mystery where the murder victim is someone who could only have been killed by someone who is superior to him. Part of the magic of Watchmen, I think, is that we are partly meant to believe that these guys kind of became superheroes just for mm-hmm. fun. But also the fact that visually we see that they are extremely fast, extremely strong, have all this great technology. They really are living like superheroes as well. Yeah. So when the comedian is is murdered right at the very beginning, I think that's even addressed in various uh, versions of it that it's Rorschach who basically says this couldn't have been a burglary. Right. You wouldn't have killed the comedian even... Even in his old age, he would have been able to fight off a burglar, no problem. Right. So originally, that's your hook. And in a way, Rorschach kind of feels like the main character at first. You're sort of really following his storyline, his investigation. And, you know, he goes and talks to different people. And that's how we're being introduced to the different characters like Dr. Manhattan and Laurie. And then we kind of just go into their own separate journeys. The way it's it flows is it's just very impressive to me. The way it was all weaved together, it's just really, really great. I feel that it just in terms of addressing the mystery, yeah. as you mentioned, all, all of these different flashbacks, the lore that is included 
mm. L-O-R-E law that is that is included yeah. all the way through that yeah. you feel like, okay, this is an authentic world. And the more that you can reveal to us, the more we can dig, the more we're going to find out. Exactly. That's exactly it. They not only use the flashbacks as opportunities to flesh out the characters, but you, like you said, we're really getting to explore this world. We're getting to explore the history of Watchmen or in the graphic novel, they're crime busters. And then you get to see the original, original, original sort of superheroes. Because I believe in this alternate world, uh, they started in 1939, 1940s. And then you get the first Night Owl. I really like those details too, how there was an original Night Owl. And now there's like a second one. The Which is also a common trope in, in, in modern comic books as right. well. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so there's that. And, and you're getting to see like the history of the world in this alternate uh, universe you're getting to see how for example Richard Nixon went for a third term and you know there's you really buy into the world because of the level of detail that well, Alan Moore really put into this New York how these characters are reacting to these real life events that has to really engage in this story yeah so anyways that comes full circle so by the time you're at the very end and you're at the end of this mystery and you're at the end of this you're at hour three it's just, it feels like a, a very satisfying journey. So one, one of the things I, I'd just like to begin with as well, as we start to look into the story, is just mm -hmm. the introduction to the graphic novel, which mentions that it began with just a simple couplet from Bob Dylan in his 1966 masterpiece, Desolation Row, mm. where it says, At midnight all the agents and the superhuman crew come out and round up everyone who knows more than they do. Mm. It seems like in Dylan's lyrics, it's, it's slightly pessimistic. It's, it's about that sense of groups exerting their power over others, telling them what is right and what is wrong. Right. The hook to Watchmen, what makes that world interesting to us, is that the people of that world do not blindly accept that they need to be watched over mm. by superheroes. In fact, they rebel against it. And mm -hmm. they're all kind of outcasts. And Rorschach yeah. in particular is the ultimate outcast. He's the one who is going to carry on doing it no matter what anyone else thinks. Uh, Night Owl, the younger Night Owl, he's always apologizing and saying sorry to everyone who's, who's disturbed by their actions in, in the public around them. Then you have Laurie Jupiter, who mm -hmm. is the Silk Spectre, is mm -hmm. her superhero name. And she's doing it because her, her mother's pressured her into doing it. And, yeah. then, and then you have the real kind of authentic heroes in a way, which are Ozymandias, the comedian, and Dr. Manhattan. Right. Seem to genuinely possess some, some powers that, that other people do not have. Some supernatural thing. Well, the comedian perhaps not entirely, but he's... It, it's something to do with a switch going off in his mind that he basically is operating yeah he's <laughs> kind pretty of in he, a super, he, superhuman fashion yeah he's he's a beast but yeah they're not overly supernatural in terms of what their powers are except mm -hmm. for dr manhattan and we're, we're obviously i really do like the bit where the original night owl decided to retire as soon as dr manhattan happened and his explanation of that was really cool when he said like well we don't you know you don't we don't really need us anymore you're here and he wrote this like whole biography i thought that was really cool 
Actually, he was one of my favorite characters. I really, Old Hollis. Oh, yeah. I really, really liked him in the film, too. I thought he was a very interesting character. And I liked also his sort of um, relationship with Laurie. And, like, you know, because he represents him and not Laurie, Laurie's mom, how they both sort of represent the old times. And yeah, it just, it just kind of gives the whole story a much more rich uh, sort of background and more of a detailed world that I really enjoyed. In terms of Dr. Manhattan and the comedian, they're still working for the government. They're the only ones that are still allowed to be operational after the Keene Act, I think it is. Mm-hmm. So it's been, I think, six years in the film since this thing happened. And that's another hook that kind of uh, pulls you in, at least for me, too. It's like, oh, these superheroes are not outlaws, but they're not allowed to be superheroes. So, yeah, I I would like to look at what are the bare bones of this story? Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to try and adapt this, like you already mentioned about Alan Moore actually specifically adding filler into the story, mm-hmm. as a screenwriter, you kind of have to take all of that out. And I think in the in the David Hayter version of the, the screenplay and then the final version... There's almost, at times, if you look at a specific scene and you look at which lines of dialogue were kept and which ones were excluded from the graphic novel Mm -hmm. and which background characters were kept and which were excluded, Mm -hmm. you actually end up sometimes with a polar opposite because two different things could have been theoretically discarded. Mm -hmm. So the, the hater script, for example, doesn't really have much of the two Bernards at the newsstand. But mm. that, that becomes quite prominent in the film. It does, yeah. And uh, I think with the Hater and Alexei versions of the screenplay, they had identified that those were enjoyable characters for us to revisit time and time again. And in, in fact, with the, the film version, the characters that really get cut are the cops that are really following up on the investigation of the murder of, right. of the comedian. Mm-hmm. They form a prominent role in in the graphic novel mm-hmm. and they're pretty much cut out for for most of the the film version yeah so making a decision on what to cut it's not necessarily that there is just a right way and a wrong way to do this there are just different ways yeah it, it depends on kind of what the tone they're, they were kind of going for as well mm-hmm. and that's another way of, of of doing it too and anything that doesn't fit the theme gets discarded if it doesn't directly affect the plot or the story in general yeah. going back to the bare bones of it you know it's a very simple story in a way it's kind of got it's a very film noir uh this murder mystery leads to um the revelation that there's a greater conspiracy happening and there's like a whole mystery of it and also in the background something that that's also very important and both the graphic novel and the film don't explore it too much i mean it's there which is the the tension between the Soviets and, and the U.S. and like this Cold War era, this sort of like, you know, World War Three impending. And there's this great tension between these two countries. And that's in the background. And if you kind of get a sense that this whole thing is connected to that mm-hmm. or it's going to lead us to that because we're constantly being seeing it in the background and it's also because it's a reflection of our own world that actually is the heart of the story and it's because we're looking at it from this outside perspective where we know how history progressed in our world Mm -hmm. but dr manhattan didn't come along and 
interfere with that timeline. So World War II presumably happened in the same way that it did for our world as well. Right. And then the start of the Cold War, the start of the space race, would have happened as it was going to, and then Dr. Manhattan comes along, and that changes everything. And what it somehow caused in, in this timeline was a situation where there was the constant threat of nuclear war mm-hmm. because the arms race just escalated because America had Dr. Manhattan on its side, so the Russians started just hyper-energetic mm. arm, arming themselves with nuclear weapons. Right. And so we're looking at it this through this, this strange lens where we're thinking, hang on, this is, this is a dystopia. This is not the place, whatever was wrong with our world. In that world, President Nixon serves five terms. And right. clearly, American politics becomes so destabilized that that this is allowed to happen, mm-hmm. and it's because of this constant threat of war, the constant danger. So they've reached this point, which is ultimately not what is meant to be. And so, what the film version does with its ending is has Adrian Fate, the hero, Ozymandias. Mm-hmm essentially the smartest man in the world is how he's known. Well, in in all versions, he identifies that this is not really the state the world should be in. And it's about the lengths he's willing to go to, as we find out as the mystery progresses. Mm -hmm. What are the lengths he's willing to go to to restore the world to the way that would really bring it back to being kind of more like our world again? Right. Where you wouldn't have Dr. Manhattan and you wouldn't have the threat of nuclear war. Ozymandias is the antagonist of the film. And we it's revealed towards the end that this was actually his doing. He killed the comedian because the comedian found out a little too much. But the, the interesting part of the revelation is, you know, his, yeah, his motivation for doing it. It's not like he's a you know, a crazy villain trying to dominate the world, you know, twirling his mustache. He actually has some legitimate reason for what he's doing. And, you know, to be honest with you, it doesn't kind of make sense, a lot of what he's saying, which is to me always a good, it's always a a really attractive thing in a villain when you can sort of agree with some of the stuff he's saying because it kind of reveals a lot about it's not just black and white. And the reason why, why he wanted to do that is to create this sort of um, event where 15 million people would die in order for the rest of the world to survive, essentially. He's sacrificing these 15 million people. And like he says, in order to save billions. Um, mathematically, that, that would seem like that is a logistically good thing. Mm-hmm. And that that is that is exactly it. The danger of the what makes a villain so gripping is the sense that that we know their thinking is misguided, mm-hmm. but if you can see it from their point of view, you can see how they fell into the way of thinking yeah. that they ended up with. I'm not sure if it's best to put that as essentially that they are doing the right thing in the wrong way, or if you would call it doing the wrong thing but for the right reasons either way of putting it i suppose yeah is, this is kind of what is at the heart of these great memorable iconic villains 
Yeah, and and that's what's a great thing about the film is that it it oftentimes feels like a philosophical journey. It honestly feels like a conversation, and I really wanted to say this at the beginning of the of the podcast. Actually, I really do feel like that's part of the charm for me that it has this sort of just ongoing conversation about you know the sort of deep questions that I think most people、uh, have. Yeah, and what kind of world do you want to live in? What how do you think we should? Govern the world and disagreements between countries with the prospect of、yeah. actual nuclear war and the nature of just humanity and the and the human condition, you know, and it's explored through all these different perspectives. You know, you have Rorschach, who, like you said earlier, has his own code of ethics, and some of them really do make sense. Some of them may not resonate, but nonetheless, there is a point there. There is something to. See there that you might agree with. Like I feel like I agreed with every character at least once at one point. You、mm-hmm. know what I mean? But they're、Even、all in Doctor Manhattan. Yeah. Even yeah. Doctor Manhattan, especially him. I, I, there was definitely a lot of times where I'm like, he's making. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, when he's up in Mars and he's having that big discussion with Laurie,、uh, his discussions with you know other characters in the film, because he's kind of like Spock. You know, he's not driven by emotion. He's he's more of a Like he sees past, future, present, all at once. He's he's all- a pure rationalist, but he's、right. also got the most evidence about life that anyone has ever had. Which is, it's it's, it's one thing to be a rationalist and a philosopher in a limited human capacity, but he's able to literally leave Earth and、right. see it from the perspective of space. He's able to. See the atoms and the particles that people are made up of, not just the、mm. the persona that they're portraying to the world through their their actions and their and、yeah. the expressions on their faces. He's able to see so far beyond. I think there's a brilliant quote in in the graphic novel where he he says it's. I wish I knew the exact words, but he essentially says it's like you're you're looking at this multi-surface diamond.、Mm. And humans are only ever looking at one side at once, and he's、mm. seeing every single side of the entire object all at once.、Mm. And、mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's one of the best ways of him expressing what it is like to be him. Yeah. Another thing you were mentioning about, you know, how the panels, the comic book way of reading, is very reflective of how Doctor Manhattan also sees the world. Because when you're reading a comic book, you know, at Any point, you can go up to the top of the page or the second part of the page, and you're seeing past, future, present all at once. And that's kind of what Doctor Manhattan does. You know, he's he's everywhere, but also nowhere at the same time. He's not very present, which is part of the the strain and the relationship between him and Laurie is that he's not really there, even though he is everywhere. Yeah, you know it's that weird paradox, that and and that's where that battle comes when when she'll challenge him and say, "Well, why does it matter what I do if you know everything that's going to happen?" And he's saying, "Because it is going to happen. It's this isn't this isn't a choice. It's not、right. like I can tell you you're going to say this to me, yeah, and then you can choose not to. It's it's going to happen, and the fact that I'm telling you this won't affect the outcome." For screenwriters, in particular, trying to write a screenplay where you have time travel, for example,、mm-hmm. there's always this establishment of rules, and the best 
films and screenplays about time travel are the ones that really explore where the limits of those rules lie. And with Dr. Manhattan, we have a very interesting scenario in that he can say something to someone about what's going to happen to them, Hmm. and they will still go on and do it. And he's not predicting the future and then changing the outcome. The outcome always was and always will be. And that's the that's kind of the magic draw of of Doctor Manhattan as a character to us because we're so fascinated by by this concept underlying mm-hmm. him. Yeah, and and I really love this one line that he says that he says we're all puppets. You know, I'm just a puppet that can see the strings. Yeah, he you knows know? that he has no real effect. Yeah, he's just an observer, and and then I, and that seems to be sort of like his the heaviness on that. You know, because he, in a way that doesn't sound very fun. Hmm. I'd li- as we're going to go, I think we're going to go through each character as opposed to trying to tell yes. the story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very long story. It's three three hours in in the film. The graphic yep. novel is four hundred pages. We can't do a scene by scene breakdown. What we can do is give you a sense of how that character was originally written, where David Hayter tried to take the characters in the two thousand and three version, and who they ended up being in the final version. That's pretty much all yeah. we can feasibly do in in the podcast. Dr. Manhattan in the graphic novel, a lot of this is dropped out of the, the character's history. It is included in the, um, in the draft screenplay I've referred to. But he was the son of a watchmaker. Mm-hmm. And it actually kind of comes out of nowhere in the film that he gets locked in in that, uh, the chamber that transforms him in the scientific experiment. Mm. But he's going back to get a watch for that. his first wife, Janie. She was um, also a scientist. Also, she also worked at the same research facility. Yeah. And um, but there was a twist of fate in which her watch got broken, and he was repairing it for her. And that kind of forms part of his character. That he, in the graphic novel, I'm I'm kind of glad they took this bit out because I don't think it necessarily rings true as the most authentic description of how people become who they are but his father was a watchmaker he he's at home as a teenager making a watch when world war ii breaks out or no when world war ii ends with the atomic bomb Mm -hmm. and his father throws all of the cogs of the watch away and Mm -hmm. says you're not going to need this anymore you need to learn atomic science and then dutiful son he is he's he says okay dad i will go and learn atomic science for you clearly he was a very gifted child and at that age he was 16 so he was about to go to university right and he ended up pursuing science but something about that didn't necessarily ring true you know this just his his father barking orders and then he just went and did it considering it's like 10 years of studying he would need to do to become who (laughs) who he became right but but that's how it's established in the graphic novel Mm -hmm. that watchmaker element though comes because Alan Moore created these characters and he adds little epitaphs at the end of each mm. at the end of each chapter, which is essentially each book of each comic book mm-hmm. that they're called chapters in the combined version. And for Dr. Manhattan's chapter, the quote is the release of atom power has changed everything except our way of thinking. The solution to this problem lies in the heart of mankind. If only I had known, I should have become a watchmaker. Albert Einstein. Mm, I read that, yeah. So that quote, I think that's where the whole 
watchmaker element of Dr. Manhattan's character mm. comes from. It's a homage to Einstein's comments about the power of the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a nice gesture, but is it necessary to make this story work? Probably not. So yeah, it no. Can be lo- it can be removed, I think. Definitely details like that, you know. Um, like mentioned before, they didn't really take out too, too much, but like the stuff, it really felt like they really did trim the fat. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see how that would have really in- enhanced the story at all. And I do see how Zack Snyder's version of Watchmen did honor these quotes, but it didn't do it by including these quotes. What it did was include iconic songs, such as yeah. the the brilliant opening sequence, mm-hmm. the I times era that, changing, yeah. which is just was phenomenal. Great. Is if that was just a six minute video on Vimeo, I would watch it just by itself. It's it's fantastic. I mean, the first six seven minutes that starts with the murder and then goes into the song like it's just like every shot every beat it's like so good so Uh, so good the the sound of silence at the Mm -hmm. comedian's funeral ride of the valkyries during the vietnam war scene those kind of things all along the watchtower when they're going to antarctica those are the quotes that uh zach snyder is adding it back into the film so instead of using actual quotes yeah. as as the graphic novel does it uses the soundtrack to give us a sense of this was the moment this was the time this is what the song was that just emphasizes what that generation was about yeah no that was a brilliant touch i love the score and and i mean i love the songs that he used as well they were the perfect choice yeah no dr manhattan he's a very unique character like i said he's kind of resembles spock a little bit, but a little bit more, way more powerful, obviously. He's definitely one of my favorite characters from from the novel. I think he he lives by a, a, a diff, his own set of ethics in a way, too. He, he He's not opposed to killing. You know, he does... There's this really great scene when he goes into a... I don't know if it's a bar or somewhere, but he, like, pretty much blows up a bunch of people, and their, like, bones end up on the roof, and there's, like, blood dripping, and he saved the day, but you get to see the messiness of that, you know? And I thought that was really, really interesting. Well, he ha- he has the power to go way too far. Yeah. Yeah, he, he definitely has the power to go way beyond right. any normal human's capacity. He is essentially an atomic bomb himself. Yeah, he, he possesses so much power, and I think he's neutral he's a very neutral character he, i don't think he deals with like good and bad good and evil in the traditional sense i think he's you know like ozymandias a little bit more logistical logical and and not so drawn by emotion or drawn to emotion or driven by emotion i think at the very end when he kills rorschach he doesn't really flinch he sees that this is what he wants and he sees that it would give him the peace that he's looking for, and he just does it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really have any emotional attachment. And then you see the reaction of Night Owl, which is like the complete opposite, which is yeah, a very he, human. He clearly has lost his friend. That's yeah. how he. It's a very human reaction. Yeah. Um, which, you know, begs the question is that, like, you know, when it's put it like that, you know, obviously, by the way, um, Jackie Earl Haley as Rorschach was so good just in reference to that scene where he's obviously pleading to kill him and you see that 
that desire and Dr. Manhattan pretty much does him a favor. So you so in that and in that scene you're kind of questioning like, well, was that the right thing to do? And is Night Owl just or his like you're saying he lost his friend. So is that selfish? You know what I mean? Like who's got the reaction that's more appropriate to that happening and not not approaching it from an emotional perspective, but just from a simple logical one. The the best kind of action film is the one where bodies aren't necessarily disposable that we still feel the loss of a character that we still yeah. feel that a death is significant whether it's whether it's a comedian in the first few minutes or whether it's Rorschach right at the end another thing i would love to think about in terms of how do you adapt this graphic novel in the draft screenplay version david hayter really tried to follow a lot of the specific dialogue that's going on and in the in the graphic novel you have this point where Dr. Manhattan is is imposing a self-exile upon himself and he's going to go to Arizona and then to Mars. And he's he's narrating everything that's happening to him and saying, I'm in 1959 and mm-hmm. I'm still John Osterman and this is what's happening to me here. But at the same time, I'm here and I'm doing this in this year. And he's he's listing off all the years and where he is and how he is present in that time in the past and when you try and break that down as a, as a story and you put it on on paper as just a few pages of this type of text you realize the extent to which this works in in the comic format where you do have these panels coexisting around each other mm-hmm. and you can see and you can fl- and you can look back and if you if you're getting lost in in that explanation Mm-hmm. You can pause, you can look back, mm-hmm. you can figure out where you are and follow him. I think the biggest uh, success of the film was to to step away from that, to not try and do things that can only be done in comic format and to teach us through very linear flashbacks mm-hmm. the past. Of, we still get to learn the same backstory, but we get to experience it linearly. And we're not trying to deal with trying to be Dr. Manhattan and mm-hmm. all of these things happening at the same time, but also happening at different points in time. So I, I think that was actually the, the right solution to make there was to simplify the flashbacks and tell us everything we need to know. Yeah. Take us back to the 50s, mm-hmm. show us who he used to be, then show us how he transformed, then show us what happened next in his relationship and just keep it nice and linear. Yeah, and it didn't feel like it was intrusive. None of the flashbacks, in fact, felt intrusive. If never- anything, they excite you. I think you're like, oh, finally, like I get to know a bit more of the backstory of this, yeah, this world. Because everyone's a bit of a mystery uh, at the beginning, and you're just slowly getting to know these characters little by little. So like you were saying that comic books and film are completely different mediums, and I think in film you you have the advantage that it's a very visual thing like you don't have to imagine it's right there in front of you so you can do more of a showing in subtle things instead of having to spell it out like you would have to in kind of a comic book format and i think that was the advantage with dr manhattan it's like from the get-go you're just like ooh, who is this guy obviously he has like supernatural powers because you have the image right there to exude that in the comic book you do have that but it doesn't translate 
quite so fast because it's a blue man. Visually, it's very easy to see when Dr. Manhattan is talking because all of his speech bubbles are blue. Well, yeah, there's another, that too, yeah. It's a, it's a coding mechanism used, mm-hmm. and it's it's visual. So you hear his voice because it's it's blue. The film can use voiceovers, mm-hmm. but then it's limited to showing one thing on screen, and I think that's about as much as we really need is a voiceover and something on screen. And I think, you know, he's got his own arc. I think every character's got their own very specific arc. And Dr. Manhattan, I really enjoyed his journey, you know, kind of going from sort of giving up on Earth and finding the whole concept of life just way too complicated for him. You know, he even says at one point, it's just he'd rather go somewhere where it's not so complicated or he was admiring Mars for the absence of life and how yet there's like an ecosystem there. Which Laurie then counter argues, well, that is life, you know. But anyways, uh, and I like how it shifts, you know, by having that conversation with her and having that moment with her in Mars, his whole uh, perception changes because he does say, now I do care about life. There's a there's something that happens that has him shift his perspective on how he once was seeing the world. He's still seeing it in the, in the same way, like he's still feeling everything, but now he's seeing it from a different vantage point. And I think in the comic book, well, it's a really long quote, but the, the very last part is what I really like. He pretty much says that he doesn't believe in miracles. And then he starts talking about, he finds out about Lori and who her real dad is and they're having this moment. And then he realizes that just every life is a miracle. And he says, but the world is so full of people, so crowded with these miracles that they become commonplace and we forget. We gaze continually at the world and it grows dull in our perceptions. Yet seen from another vantage point, as if new, it may still take the breath away. So he, by going into exile, I think he rediscovers something about himself and how he sees the world. Which yeah. I, I found really cool in his story arc. A very good writer that I spoke to recently was... The thing we talked about was not just seeing characters in terms of their plot. Not not just mm-hmm. in terms of the the events that are going to go on through their lives. But revealing who they are based on their interactions with other characters. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Mm-hmm. That just completely came back to my mind talking about Dr. Manhattan and Laurie because Laurie, we know, we can really see that through that interaction, through that relationship, even though it's not really this loving matrimony that, that mm-hmm. it appears to be at first that they are a couple. What we really realize is he does say at one point she's his only link to the world. Mm-hmm. She's one of the few people he's really willing to interact with mm-hmm. and then that will transform him as a character as long as he's opening himself up and interacting with other characters that will allow him to change and so as we as writers are, are thinking well what causes change in our characters is it the fact that they they got out of that dangerous situation unscathed or is it because they got the job they wanted or they got the goal mm. they wanted. Not necessarily. Change can just come from the interaction between two or the battle between two and and then figuring each other out and working around each other. So I 
it's a very unspoken rule that's hiding underneath the surface of this story mm-hmm. is the extent to which Dr. Manhattan probably would never have cared about people again if Laurie had not convinced him to. Yeah. Even though she didn't really know how she was doing it, it yeah. was just the fact that they were interacting uh, that this huge transformation happens. And I think the same thing, and this is a nice segue into Laurie's, uh, we can we can look at Laurie as a character. Mm-hmm. But she finds a new life in in her relationship with with Dan, who is the the second night owl. Mm-hmm. That she she was static. She she was going. Her life was not really changing. She was just going through the motions, living with John, Doctor Manhattan, right, on this military base. And it's not until she's really introduced to someone else again, and she well, reconnecting with him in in mm-hmm. this particular sense. That this whole new evolution occurs in her again. She starts to appreciate being a superhero for the sake of being a superhero as opposed to being told to do it. She starts to see the power that she has as an individual and she gets to fall in love genuinely for mm-hmm. the first time. She comes alive. Uh and that is for and that happens through her relationship with Dan, who's a you know, a really nice guy and um, he actually sees her and appreciates her, and that's something that she didn't feel f- with Doctor Manhattan, at least not recently. Um, in the comic books, I believe that shifted once they started working for the government. So yeah, like that is a very um, pivotal moment when she decides to leave Doctor Manhattan. You know, she's just had enough and. She reconnects with Dan, and uh, and with Dan, there was always a, a connection too. Because in the flashbacks, you could see there was these like little moments between them, these looks, these glances. You know, maybe an attraction that never was quite manifested, and this was just like the perfect timing for that to sort of get explored. I found that whole bit like really, really cool because, you know, she's probably the one that didn't want to be a superhero. Again, I, I, I'm just very impressed by how every character has their own arc and their own sort of mm-hmm. beginning, middle, end. And with her, part of part of her character too is um, the history that came before her because her mom actually plays an important part. And not only her story, but I think overall, just simply because of her connection to the comedian who, you know, even though he's dead within the first five minutes of the film, we get to really get to know this guy a lot through the different perspectives there's a really subtle rewrite in in between this draft script and the final the final version Mm -hmm. which speaks volumes and it's something i think would be very very easy to miss during the comedian's funeral Mm -hmm. laurie uh, doesn't want to go because she knows about the the attempted rape of the comedian on her mother right so john transports her to california where her mother is in a retirement home and when she arrives in the draft version of the screenplay her mother offers her a margarita and she accepts it and in the film she sees her mother is drinking and she says what are you doing mother it's two o'clock in the afternoon and just that tiny little thing, it mm. really changes the dynamic. There's such a difference between, mm-hmm. oh, it's so nice to see you. Let's let's have a drink and spend time together. And 
judging the other person immediately you know they're they're picking at each other they're they're finding flaws in each other to 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 point out i think that is exactly how you write those kind of mother-daughter relationships and or any kind of conflict between any relationships within between characters it's sometimes like the littlest interactions and that's exactly true like uh just that small little change in reaction to one character to the other completely changes how you're seeing the dynamic play out between them that's Mm -hmm. brilliant yeah and then there's visible there's visible tension on the screen when Mm -hmm. these two are together and and like most things i think the what's really going on with laurie and her mother is is all of the underlying stuff all of the stuff that's buried in their memories Mm -hmm. and it is through the events of this story the fact that through her time with Dr. Manhattan, she's she's kind of forced into returning into her memories and learning more about her past and seeing it in a new light. That yeah. that's what causes a lot of the transformation in her and allows her to really come out of it as this brand new person, this this confident, strong and and really dynamic uh, superhero. Very empowered. Becomes. You yeah. know, the the Lori that shows up at the very end to confront Ozymandias, like you, she's in superhero mode. I really love that shot of her walking down the stairs with uh, Rorschach and uh, Night Owl. Like she's in command and she's at the end of her journey, but she's earned that, you know, she's earned that sort of like walking down with that presence and that strength. Yeah, and sex scenes can be gratuitous in, in films. And this is one of the most necessary sex scenes i think from a psychological point of view of the characters that that there's ever been in that we see them struggling to get intimate this is all in in the graphic novel this is all in alan moore's version Mm -hmm. as well but they're struggling to get intimate they're struggling they they're attracted to each other but they don't neither of them have the confidence and the sense of self and it's only after they dress up as heroes and go out and go out and save some people and feel alive again and really feel like they're in control of their own destinies, mm. that suddenly they can connect again intimately. Yeah. And again, that would be such an easy thing to miss, but this is a really key part of human human dynamics. It's why there's a whole branch of, uh, of psychology just dedicated to sex therapy. It's because these things will come around in, in different places, in different aspects of yeah. someone's life the same underlying issue will come out and and you can see she calls dan inhibited early on you know Mm. she says you're inhibited that's that's a problem and it's only once he loses those inhibitions those two together Mm. can can start to become who they really are absolutely yeah and it it is a very important part of the of her story specifically because she's yearning for that she's yearning for that connection again for that intimacy that uh, that she hasn't had with Dr. Manhattan in a very long time. And, and maybe can't have with him because of who he is and the well, fact I don't, he can't really be in the moment anymore. I don't know. She seemed to have been having fun with those two Dr. Manhattans before she found out there were two Dr. Manhattans. She seemed quite uh, enjoying that. But um, obviously she wasn't happy with that idea and and you're right like she needs a human touch and dr manhattan is probably a little bit far removed from that warmth now yeah not necessarily human anymore yeah we can go into dan unless you have more to say about laurie 
No, let's talk about Dan. Uh, I think I think it's a similar story with Dan yes. uh, overall, and he is he is holding on to the past. He still has mm-hmm. his basement. He is he's Batman without Alfred. He's he's got this deserted bat cave. It's essentially a bat cave that he has underneath his his house, connected to the subway, pretty mm-hmm. much, which I thought was really cool. But. It, Ultimately, he's holding on. He he knows this is outlawed. He's not meant to be using any of this stuff anymore. But he still has all of his costumes and his his uh, what do you call it? A spaceship, I suppose, which he calls Archimedes. Archie. Yeah, I love it. The design is really cool. I I really love it. That's one of the other things that's filled out by having a bit more background and a bit more time. Is that we also discovered that a lot of, a lot of the technological. Uh, changes that have occurred in this world are actually a result of Dr. Manhattan existing in that he moved technology forward mm-hmm. drastically compared to our world. And that's why there are such things as flying ships and, and things like that that we just right. wouldn't be able to conceive of. It's a nice little way of tying up what could be considered a, a plot hole in a way of, well, how could that be designed in the 80s? As well, because there's been this technological revolution because right. of what Dr. Manhattan can do at an atomic level. Yeah, when you're seeing Dr. Manhattan teleporting groups of people, the that doesn't seem like such a far-fetched thing. And uh, yeah, and he's he's very earnest. Like his character is very earnest. He's probably the most, I would say, sensitive of the characters. He's, like you said, he's holding on to the past. He's constantly... Um, having nights out with uh hollis night owl number one uh and they have a really cool relationship you know there's this really fun uh little bit where i think it's hollis who says do you ever miss it and um dan says no and then uh, very clearly in that moment they're both lying to each other yeah (laughs) but it's just such a very interesting moment because that's such a human thing you know you both characters, both people saying something that's not true and they both know it's not true, but yet they're saying it and they walk away accepting each other's answers, which is really funny. But in terms of, of, of him, he I feel like all the other characters at one they weren't really all in to begin with when they were all together. You know, I think the comedian always thought it was ridiculous. Dr. Manhattan was not that I don't know, maybe he he was all about it, but um Laurie obviously wasn't a big fan of just being a superhero in general, so I can't imagine her being, yeah. you know, really into it. It seems yeah, like Ozymandias believed it was too small scale. He he thought he could change the world, yeah. But in order to do that, he would need to think way bigger picture than going around and enforcing the laws. It didn't satisfy his needs, and like you said, it was not it was not big enough. And I think I feel like out of everybody, he was the one that was the most about being part of a team. And he even says it in, in one scene where he's like, you know, he just felt like he belonged. And, you know, he was genuinely noble and was for that purpose, which he he feels like he's a standout in the in a in a room full of very cynical characters. He's he's the odd man out, which in, and normally he probably like the Avengers, for example, they're all pretty much earnest and noble and um so in a way it's kind of backwards. He's like the odd man out the one that actually wants to be there, which I really enjoyed from his character. Which is also why he gravitates towards Rorschach as well. It's because 
Rorschach has the moral code, even though he's not, he doesn't look the part, he is authentic underneath. And I mm. think uh, Dan gravitates towards that in, in a sense. He, mm-hmm. he sees, and they do become a separate team almost, both in the historical sense and in the, the sense of the events that happen throughout this story as well. They did have a separate relationship where they were a bit of a team. Right, yeah, they're a really good duo, and and that certainly comes into play at the at the very end. And you know, it's um, I like the arc that that he gets to. I mean, it's uh, I think he finally gets what he wants at the very end, which is really nice because not every character does. And yeah, uh, I mean, he survives and he he finds love. So I think I yeah. think he definitely gets a good storyline out of this. I think he he learns at the yeah. end the limits of who he is and what mm. he can feasibly change. And if there's going to be people like Ozymandias and Dr. Manhattan in the world, he's never going to be one of them. Mm. He could be a great superhero enforcing local laws in New York City, but he's never going to be one of them, one of those people who is trying to change the whole world on a global scale. Right. And I th- I think he learns to accept that he's happy in that place. He's yeah. he would have been happy just hanging out with Hollis every evening and growing old with with Laurie. I think that was all he really needed. Yeah, he's a very very simple guy and you know, simple guy gets his way at the end. I think he uh, him and the Night Owl before him, they're just very earnest characters and they're very similar in a way. And like I said, I really love the relationship between him and Hollis and that scene with um, Hollis is not a main character, but just to kind of put in a little bit about him, that scene where he dies. So he's talking to Sally, Laurie's mom, and that's when, um, you know, the, the gang breaks in and, you know, kills them. It's such a like just visually that's such a great scene Mm. like every shot and the edit and you know sort of what he's from his perspective what he's looking at these flashbacks from the old time so you know when they barge in it's almost like an excuse for him to go into superhero mode and kind of relive that moment that he probably hasn't lived in uh, probably years and years and all of a sudden he's yeah decades fighting um obviously he loses because he's an old man now, but I just thought that was just such a beautiful, nostalgic, beautiful moment for that character. And and that's actually almost shot by shot in the comic book. Like the whole... Yeah, the fight. Yeah. The fight is very much the same in terms of what's going on in the flashbacks and all that. So I just really enjoy that very much. I, I also think that Dan is a character that changes the least between yeah. all of the different versions I've read. And I think that's because he's quite stable in being this character of that. You, there's not too much to mess around with there. He's almost a straight man of the group. You yeah. know, there's always kind of a straight man in it. If you have an ensemble, there's usually one that's sort of like the the rock, the straight man. And and, and, and this would be him, I mm. feel. he He has a very strong moral compass. He tries to operate in the world of moral ambiguity and he he doesn't like it when when he's forced to try and uh stop the riots that are happening back in the 70s with the comedian 
he he's embarrassed to be there. He doesn't want to be doing that. But we do see that he also has a breaking point and that his his moral compass can go awry when Hollis is murdered. Mm-hmm. He goes and beats up a yeah. guy who couldn't possibly have been the one right. who had murdered Hollis, but he wants revenge on someone who looks like, yeah. who is also part of that gang, who looks right. like them. And yeah. so he, yeah. you can see he's he's fighting that moral fight within himself when he realizes kind of what he's done that he attacked this possibly that guy isn't innocent of everything but he he was attacking him just for revenge just and and that's he realizes he was in that dangerous place of just stereotyping people just picking someone out and saying you look like this and then attacking them yeah so he yeah it's it's an interesting dynamic to dan's character to be able to address that aspect of human nature he's coming from a purely emotional state and perspective and i think that's the i think that's the the most worked up we see him in the entire in the entire film and graphic novel where he really gets really angry and he learns pretty quickly that no matter what he does it's not going to bring hollis back yeah so he still will choose to take the right path of of being a good person yeah well he had that emotional outburst and then he he reflects and regroups within himself yep and if we want to go then to warshak because you know him and warshak like you said they have a bond there that we don't see warshak have with many of the other characters he's a loner anyway yeah yeah but obviously he's he's putting people off because he he smells bad people think he's a lunatic dan says at one point yes (laughs) uh and he's uh He's a very anti-hero, like you said. But I think being with um, Night Owl kind of brings out some good qualities in him. One thing I learned from reading the graphic novel was how his mask works as well, which is not covered in the film, Mm. Uh, which is that there was a technological innovation that also came about following Dr. Manhattan's creation. And it's essentially these... Within two layers of latex, there there's some fabrics that are kind of malleable and move around of their own accord. And a woman had requested a dress made out of this material. When she saw yeah. it, she didn't like it. And he stole it and took it home and cut it up. And now Rorschach refers to it as his face. He wears it. It's, it's what he uses as his superhero disguise. But there is, as we see with his interactions with the... Uh, psychotherapist that he that he sees in prison Mm -hmm. he has become rorschach there's a point where he stopped being walter kovacs his Mm -hmm. original self and went all in and became rorschach yeah and i believe that was the moment with the girl that got kidnapped Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. he he saw a crime so horrific that it changed him forever Another of the rules of screenwriting is you're not meant to have a mother who is abusive towards their child. Rorschach's mother is very abusive Mm -hmm. towards him when he's a child. Mm. And that will make us sympathize with him a little bit because we see him as one of those characters who we feel that he wasn't raised by loving parents. He, He ended up being who he was partly because he was traumatized as a kid. Yeah. He, you know, a mother's love is the most nurturing thing when you're a kid. 
And when you're deprived of that, and not only just deprived of that, you are the subject to the violence coming from what's supposed to be the nurturing, warmth, presence in your life as a kid. Then yes, yeah, so that that could obviously do something to you. And so I think that's where we st- and there are other moral code things about Rorschach which are admirable to us as well. He never carries weapons, so he's not going around looking to murder people. Mm-hmm. So when um, Moloch is is murdered in the in the event that's going to frame Rorschach and get him put into prison, the people that know Rorschach that this isn't really covered too much in the film, but it is. It's quite critical in the graphic novel and the, I think in the screenplay, uh, the screenplay draft as well. Is that the the others know that Rorschach wouldn't have done this. He wouldn't have gone and shot Moloch point blank in the face with a pistol, because Rorschach doesn't do that. He he only he only kills people in inventive ways. In, when when he kills this um the the rapist whose dogs he kills, he yeah he ties him up and sets him on fire. Yeah, you know, like he he always he always does something that's kind of a big showpiece. Let's say he do, he doesn't yeah. shoot someone at the kitchen table. Although in the film it's different. He hits him with an axe on the head, or you know, like the dog. Yeah, you know, and and also, uh, which I mean, they're both really powerful and inventive, different ways of killing someone. Obviously, and like I said, Warshak is one of those characters that you. You almost feel guilty for liking so much, you yeah. know, because he just does so many very disturbing and and vile things. If you really think about it, and, and the iconic homeless man who we see yeah. in throughout the early parts of the film, who is going up to the newsstand and asking if if his if his newspaper has arrived yet, and is carrying around this sign that says "The end is nigh." Mm-hmm. When that reveal is made, that that is Rorschach, it's it's so wonderful because this is the magician holding all the cards up his sleeves. A way of writing, isn't it? It's of course the writer knows from the beginning that Rorschach is this homeless guy, but that's that's not fun for the for the audience. The fun thing is finding out that oh, yeah. this guy that we've been seeing reoccurring and we think is completely crazy is our anti-hero all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like that a lot because he's there for like the first 30 minutes or so and then we, he kind of disappears for a while until that big reveal of him. So it's just enough time for us to kind of not forget about the the original guy, but just kind of enough distance to be like, mm. oh, he was that, you know, there it feels like the right amount of time. And on second viewing or second read or something, you get to see it right from the beginning. You're like, oh, that's Rorschach. I didn't even notice Rorschach was doing this or that in that right. scene because you kind of, he becomes a background character. Yeah, no, it's really cool. Rorschach, uh, so he kind of, I feel like he doesn't really have much of an arc. I don't think he... I don't think he really learns anything. I, I don't. Th- well, the quote I really love of Rorschach's is when he's uh, in in his first prison fight, mm. and he shouts out that I'm not locked in here with you. You're all locked in here with me. Right. And that I think that sums up Rorschach he, because he is an entity. He's not necessarily a character with this development that's going to go on through the course of this story mm-hmm. he just is who he is uh, mm-hmm. he's already reached that that point where he's become who he's going to become yeah so that the only way out is that the world is locked in with him until he's dead and that's kind of how he ends up at the end is is dead 
we get to see a bit of how he became who he was. But after that point, after that critical uh, crime that he investigated and it transformed him in a certain way, there was no more change because mm-hmm. he had seen something that basically left him incapable of changing any further. He, he yeah. just became Rorschach. I think he's just at the, like you said, at the end of his destiny, he's already the person he's going to become and, and sort of what does the fate that he encounters at the very end. It's just peace. It's just the end of, you know, this sort of existential nightmare and terror that he constantly lives in this, this life of violence, you know, of that's relentless and he's attracted to it. And obviously he's a, he's a major part of the whole murder mystery that kind of drives the story, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like, you know, what's sort of like been fueling and motivating him and whatnot. And obviously he does care for people, but he's driven by his own sense of justice and he, yeah, his sense of caring for people seems to be limited to ensuring that justice happens to the right people. Yes. And that, the wrong people don't profit. And I think that's kind of how he ties up to the ending in a, in a certain way is that he's the one who's able to call out that taking any innocent lives is a crime of significant proportion. So saying this 15 million to save a billion thing doesn't fly with Rorschach. He doesn't compromise. That's one of the things that he mentions and that's very very clear about his characters he does not compromise he has got his code of ethics and he will not budge not one bit and it's part of the reason why he really um admire the comedian as well is because the comedian and Rorschach kind of have very similar outlooks on life obviously the comedian's a little bit more extreme and more vile and less of doesn't have any morals really but even he was broken by what he found out to the point of tears and yeah there's a slight um there's a slight reflection there of the Rorschach story and the captain story because Mm -hmm. the captain becomes the comedian because Mm -hmm. he's seen something that's really terrible and what breaks the comedian what ruins the joke for him or is the biggest joke and he that's the end for him is finding out that Ozymandias is planning what he's planning that's what causes the comedian's absolute breakdown and but there was a clear reflection between once he was the captain once he was standing up for all that is good and noble and trying to be a superhero and he found out what was really lying at the bottom of all of that and what was what hu- what real human nature was like and that he was just serving to support human nature no matter what he did, then he becomes a comedian, and it's all a joke. And then I think it's a reflection. that There's a great quote of of his. I'm not sure if it made it into the final film as well. Mm. It's in the draft screenplay and the, the graphic novel, but uh, when he's he's saying, I don't know what would have happened if we'd lost this war in Vietnam. Maybe we would have gone insane as a country. Mm. And that's something that's that's directly spoken to us as an audience oh, outside. Yeah. That America would have gone insane because of the the Vietnam War, which they mm. win in their timeline. Right. And yet we're listening to that and we're thinking, oh yeah, that kind of 
did happen. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that that sense of American exceptionalism never really returned in the same way after Vietnam. No, and, and we are insane. So yes, that's <laughs> right. But yeah, just to kind of piggyback on what you said there about them reaching very similar endpoints. That's the point where he, Rorschach, you know, he walks out at the very end when he finds out about the plan and he he walks out and then um, Dr. Manhattan confronts him and then Rorschach takes off his mask and he has that that moment of desperation of just wanting to die because he's at the edge of his rope too. He just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. You know, he him, like the comedian, broke. That was it. Like, they don't necessarily go through a big change or they learn anything except like they just, they've had enough. Hmm. That That's it. That's the end point for them. One, one of the things the actual end of the story is resting on is the fact that everyone needs to accept that Ozymandias' plan had worked out mm-hmm. and not tell the world because otherwise all those lives would have been lost in vain. Correct. The idea of Rorschach returning to New York, he would have revealed it. But what no one knows about is that his journal did yes. get sent out to the newspaper. Yep. And the, the open ending of the Watchman story is that so the guy who works at the newspaper, Seymour, who mm-hmm. has the happy face yeah. uh, T-shirt on as well, he's going to find Rorschach's journal and right. discover not not only discover what happened, but also be in a position to publish what happened. But that's that's another story. That's a nice open ending. It's a perfect ending. Mm-hmm. It's a great ending um, because it also raises up all these questions of, well, how would the world react? with this information now out. So the the rewriting of the ending, I mean, we could look at Ozymandias as a character. He's tied up with the ending so much that actually you can't discuss one without discussing the other. So we know more or less who he is as a character. Smartest man in the world clearly has these aspirations of being a highly remembered historical figure in mm. the vein of Alexander the Great, Ramses II are the two, the two historical figures he... Right, he's... Essentially, he wants to build a utopia, and this is all just a process of getting there. So you have to eliminate the 15 million in order to be able to structure that utopia that he's been working on, um, which essentially is, you're right, that, that he is the plot, essentially. Mm-hmm. So... What we actually see between all of the different versions of of Watchmen is a constant rewriting of this ending. The David Hayter screenplay actually wanted to try and end this film on a positive note and have Ozymandias succeed in his plan, but he had threatened all of the world governments with this anonymous message, killed the 15 million people in New York, and then Night Owl kills him. And then they basically leave the world stable because Ozymandias is removed from the equation. That doesn't happen in the final film, and it doesn't happen in the graphic novel. In both of those, his continued existence is something that the remaining characters after Rorschach is dead have to contend with, is is knowing that he's significantly powerful Mm -hmm. financially, politically, 
and physically as well. Only Dr. Manhattan can beat him in a fight. This is quite significant in the ending, the fact that they considered for a time that it would be worth killing him off and chose not to, I think, is honoring the original story in in a good way. And I actually really like the ending now. Maybe in the theatrical version it was just jumped to too quickly and wasn't explained enough, but with this ultimate version of the film, yeah. I'm I'm on board with this ending and I like the fact that it's actually Dr. Manhattan who gets framed for everything. Mm. And it, it kind of removes him out of the equation in a way that wasn't really addressed in any, in any of the other versions of this story. He's allowed to be a presence and he's the one who has to go along with Ozymandias' plan. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the final film version, he has no choice because the world thinks he attacked them. Yeah, I actually really love the ending. It's kind of like the perfect divorce, isn't it, for them? It's him and humanity had always been in this difficult coexistence, Mm. and now it's, no, you've got to get divorced. You've done something that that's the end. (laughs) Yeah, you cheated. Yeah, well, Uh, he he killed everyone. Well, it was New York in the film. It's New York, L.A., Moscow, and Hong Kong, I think, all get destroyed by... And it's framed on Dr. Manhattan. But we only visually see New York. Correct. I think this works so much better than the squid, the giant monster that ends up taking over or killing people in New York. I mean, I hadn't read the the graphic novel, so I saw this ending first, I think. And then I read the the ending in the book. And it just, to me, it makes perfect sense why they would change it. Because it feels like, just from a tone perspective, because we never get to see any sort of creatures, it would just feel off a little bit, just visually, from everything we've seen before. And then to have this giant monster would seem kind of out of place, I think. It works in comic books because you see that all the time, but in, in a film, mm-hmm. just visually... It, and it, it and the graphic been... novel also has more time to explain how Ozymandias designed it, what right. this is, and what's, what's actually going on. Exactly. And... This is what screenwriters do for a living, right? Is figure out how to not have the plot drive the characters, but to have the characters drive the plot. Correct. So, of course, it makes much more sense to find a way that this ending can be linked directly to these individuals, to Dr. Manhattan, to Ozymandias, to Night Owl, to to Rorschach, to Laurie. You know, we need to link all of this to the comedian to know everything is explained by the end. Right. All, all of the comedian's actions that take place in this part of the timeline are completely explained by him knowing what the plan is. And we just think he's gone crazy for the first half of the film. But it's all explained. It's all character driven. And yeah. I think that's why this ending actually really does work. Yeah, I think it's all been earned. And I think, like you said, the whole uh, framing Dr. Manhattan is also a really good touch because obviously that wasn't in the graphic novel. But the fact that he accepts it and he actually agrees with Ozymandias' plan and goes along with it is a very bold move from a storytelling perspective to have like one of the heroes actually agree with the villain, quote-unquote, and that's how it ends. There's no oh, he changes his mind or whatever. No, he just, he agrees with them because that opens up, you know, a discussion for people, I think, 
what are the consequences from doing something like that? I think that's worth noting. And I think if you would have packaged it in a very nice ending, you wouldn't have those discussions. But because it kind of leaves you in that place of like, how could he have agreed to that? Mm-hmm. It kind of just gets you really thinking about that in itself. Do the means justify the end? Yeah. And he does have character growth right there at the end because he, he accepts Dan and Laurie's relationship and their love as being something genuine. Yeah. That he cannot be a part of, that he could not have done himself. Right. Which I think is is also a nice closing of that book and, and saying, okay, we we see where this kind of needed to end. He That was his last link to humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that link doesn't really need him and it's not it's not as dramatic as when they argued about this on mars it's just he knows at this point he's accepted it he knows this is the way it's going to be so he even suggests that he's going to go off and uh create new life and himself and then he kind of is fulfilling that new role as being a god of his own as opposed to being the protector of the existing humanity yeah and the other thing about the ending too is um so watching it so i was watching the film for this segment first and then i read the comic book part was when ozymandias was explaining his whole plan while he's fighting warshak and uh, night owl and when i was watching it it was like the first time i was watching the film where i felt like oh like that's so cliche like i just felt this sort of like i was just so energetic and so into it and so thrilled and then as soon as he started explaining his whole plan i was just like what like that is why are they that doesn't seem very smart i didn't know that he had already accomplished his plan yeah it completely is turned on its head but because and the fact that it actually went through like they didn't yeah. actually save the day they I, didn't... he he actually says what do you think i'm a comic book villain <laughs> and i would tell you my plan right. And you'd be able to stop. I've already done it. Happened thirty-five minutes ago, and that is that's such a good usage of the mm-hmm. trope to take something that is very well known, very common in all of the superhero and the James Bond movies and everything. The big, the, the evil mastermind reveals his plan, and the hero stops it just in time. Yep, that was brilliant to just uh, yeah. to have have it go that way. And I was like, no, 35 minutes. Okay, so then how are they going to stop it? And then they don't stop it. And it's. They cannot. They're, they're up in Antarctica. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, like they actually. Okay. And then I was back on board. But yeah, that was a brilliant way of using that and turning it around. There's a lot of comic book movies where it's all about saving the city. But sometimes there's no characters within the city to be invested in. Mm-hmm. And it's all about, it's all a concept. The concept that they're saving millions of lives, but there's no emotional attachment to the idea of, oh yeah, the city's going to blow up. When New York blows up, and then even though these two characters where you have the kid and the newspaper guy, the guy who sells the newspaper. Both called Bernard, yeah. That was a really funny moment. Yeah, they're both called Bernard. And I love the kid's reaction to it, like, oh, it's no big deal. I'm sure that there's a lot of yeah. people called Bernard. <laughs> that was a really funny He's a weird moment. kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, and so when we see them both, like, witness this, like, doom approaching. And yeah, then- we feel it. And that was a great, I think that was exactly identifying that that wasn't fat that could be cut out of the, the story. 
mm. that actually we needed someone to care about in New York City. Yes, and just also them also having a little moment because they're not good friends. You know, there's there's been some tension between the two of them throughout the entire film, and then in this moment, they're like embracing each other. Yeah, they are sailors on the same vessel. That's what yeah. they are. They are they are trapped in the same situation together, and there will always be some common some common ground between us if we're trapped in the same situation. Yeah. They're on the same boat and like they they really it kind of shows the another part of human nature is that when you're confronted with doom it, I don't know kind of shows your more benevolent side just as a closing I would love to read in it a couple of the quotes that are from the graphic novel okay which I think really can close off the themes of of this work and, and really clarify them for us so one comes at the end of one of Rorschach's chapters. And it's it's a quote from Nietzsche, and I think this this work is very much in tune with addressing the concerns that Nietzsche had about the world and where we were heading, because we are heading for doom. This is exactly the world we're in, and there's no one to trust, there's no one to believe in, there's no greater cause to aim for, and that's a terrifying fact. It's not just that it's there, but it's also terrifying. So the quote that Alan Moore selected for this really sums up Rorschach, and it really sums up the captain. Battle not with monsters, lest ye become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. Mm. Now that sums up Rorschach mm. precisely, I think. It's very interesting. I think that's um, another way of saying you are what you focus on, in a way. you know, And you see Rorschach as a character who cannot look away from death from and injustice horror, yeah. and the, the tragedy of it all. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong, but... That is what Nietzsche is identifying, mm -hmm. is that there will be things about existence so terrible that the only choice is to either acknowledge them or to look away. But if you, if you acknowledge them, that's going to change you and affect you. And then... If you look away, you're just being willfully blind. And that is exactly what happens to the comedian. It's what happens to Rorschach. It's this this knowledge that how how can the comedian change what he's seen in Vietnam? Hmm. And then that's talking to us as an audience as well. We know some of this is a fantasy world. And yet the JFK assassination we see at the beginning, the Vietnam War, the threat of nuclear annihilation... These are things from our real world, and we, mm -hmm. as, as, aside from all the crimes and and the murders and all of the other things that happen, these are yeah. all things from our real world. I think it's it, it's 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 where it's not only it's where you put your attention on, but I think being aware of it, but not being consumed by it. And these are two characters who, because you kind of get different spectrums. You have someone like Night Owl who yeah, he's found the balance he's yeah. he's he's he knows that all this stuff is going on but he's not f so focused on it he, he's not fixated i think fixated is a better word rorschach is he's fixated on this you know injustice of it all and then you have uh dr manhattan who's kind of rationalizing it trying to make sense of it in his own way but he's not emotionally one way or the other he's more neutral he's just trying to comprehend it uh, so it's interesting to see like different perspectives on just the utter horror and sometimes 
meaningless tragedies that that plague our world. You know, you can't really make sense of it. So yeah, I, I find that whole spectrum fascinating because that's what these characters are. They're commenting on this philosophy, on this sort of like thought, which is that's really brilliant that he put that in there. It's not just a superhero story. It's not just a comic. It it definitely took a lot of inspiration from the historical events of the 20th century and the great thinkers that were commenting on these events throughout. So mm. I, I think that this is a really important graphic novel to read and the film did a very good job of doing it justice. It, it does it in its own way. Yeah. They definitely complement each other and are, are better enjoyed together, I think. Uh, yeah, which is kind of the journey I went to. And to just to speak about Zack Snyder for a little bit, um, I think he he is a, he's a director that I've kind of warmed up to now. When I saw this film for the first time, when it came out in theaters, I really enjoyed it. I might have watched it on Blu-ray a few years after, and that was that. haven't really revisited it that much. But then Man of Steel... Batman v Superman like these aren't films that I was a huge fan of I think his strength is the visuals I think sometimes especially in Man of Steel and Batman v Superman the the flow of the story is not always quite there I feel like it's sometimes choppy and sometimes there's character development missing and 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 those works yeah and, and with Watchmen you have a very strong you have very, very strong source material. Exactly. Very strong screenwriters distilling that into all the necessary elements. And then you can allow the visual right. part to shine. Once once you've got the story pretty much um, foolproof, you know, like the there's no scenes you really should or could take out of the final version. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's its own thing. It's slightly different from the graphic novel, but it's also not a six hour long film. So... Yeah, and and it's a it was a perfect storm, like you said. the The source material had everything there. It had all the character characters written very nicely. So, and then to add Snyder's eye to the whole thing just really elevated everything because he he's really gifted when it comes to just cinematography and where he places the camera and how he edits, how he moves. I really warmed up to how he works in terms of visual poetry. Hmm. And that's one of the things that I got from this film too. It's just visually, it's just like one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen just in terms of like tone and colors and, you know, like the, the composition, the shots, the flow, the edit, like everything. I think it's a perfect dance and it just suits this story so well. And it just shows you if you have the right story, you have your you know your characters developed and you have this rich world and then you add a visionary like that like you get something like this but the story has to be there yeah i i think this ultimately is a tale about the characters mhm and we believe in them we we get a sense by the end that we know who all of them are yeah and I would just like to finish the podcast with one more quote that Alan Moore had selected for for the graphic novel of Mm -hmm. Watchmen. This is actually a quote from Carl Jung's Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Mm. And I believe, I've seen this quote before, and I believe it's actually something that he came up with as a result of a dream he had Mm. in which 
he felt that his unconscious mind while he was dreaming was telling him something very important through the symbols that he was seeing. Mm. And he tried to distill this. And I just think as a closing piece, you listening at home can think about how this applies to each of the different characters in this story. And what Jung wrote was, as far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light of meaning in the darkness of mere being. Mm. And when you think about Dr. Manhattan, or you try and think about Rorschach, and you try and think about Laurie and Dan, I think the answer is there. Yeah. I think, All of them have a purpose. Yeah, and that, or at least seeking that purpose. You know, I think that's that's the open-ended question for everybody in their lives too. What is the meaning you're giving to life? The so seeking the, for meaning, yes. And that's why we've highly enjoyed reviewing the graphic novel, screenplay, and film of Watchmen. Today. Yeah, this was a, a lot of material to go through, but it's been a wonderful treat, actually. It's Absolutely. a great world. Yeah. For sure. All right. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. Do make sure you check out our website at the21strewrite.com or you can also now find us on Instagram at 21st underscore rewrite 21st underscore rewrite and hopefully see you in two weeks again with our next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>